Welcome back to an all new installment of the uh, Super Metal Brothers here in the old podcast where we want you to lead us, take us somewhere, don't want to live in this podcast one more day. Yeah, Dennis, a bit of in flames for you today. Oh man, poor in flames, it's made me depressed already, man. I am Super Metal Brother Matt. Oh, I'm Super Metal Brother Dan. We're here to talk about all things Super Metal Brothers and Super Metal related. Uh, the more important thing today is we are doing something a little bit different from other weeks, Danny. We're wearing pants today, Matt, that's a bonus. <laughs> uh, and more important than that, we're actually doing a retro, a retro... What are we calling, Daddy? Retro review. That's what I'm talking about. We're talking a retro review. We're doing a whole entire discography of a certain band as voted by one Super Metal Brother. Hey, Danny. Exactly right. You're thinking that today was marking... This band comes from Seattle, right? I think you mentioned Seattle, America. And you probably think to yourself, well, today is the 50th anniversary of Kurt Cobain if he was still alive today. So you're thinking, well, who else is better to do than... Uh, was it Nirvana? But no, you'd no. be wrong. Why would we do Nirvana for? They're not metal. We got to end decide, no, we're going to stick with the guns. The Nevermore. That's what we're talking about. One of the quintessential, if not the greatest metal band of our current generation. Maybe a little bit before us, maybe a little bit after. Depends how you want to look at it. But at the end of the day, here's a band we always talk about here on the show, Danny. And we thought it's time we actually give them the time they need. Because, uh, hey... Why not, right? As, as we'll talk about later, apparently Arch Enemy aren't giving them the time they need. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, you know what? We want them to hear that. You know, we've talked about that too, but we'll talk about that in a sec. So uh, today we're talking about all the Nevermore albums, but first let's go into some of the news of the week, Danny, okay? And let's not talk about In Flames right from the very get-go. We mentioned at the start with uh, quoting one of their songs from the Clum Clarity record, actually being the song Clum Clarity. Um... And basically, the singer Andreas has come out and said that they are still and are going to be a melodic metal band. But there was one important thing that he forgot to mention when talking to the certain metal publication at the time, Danny. Oh, what is that, man? I'm, I'm, in, I'm riveted here. I'm riveted. Melodic death metal band. In fact, I think we are very much aware of their Coldplay references now and ditching that, you know, that old at-the-gate sound. And uh, that's what made them special. They were still a death metal band to a point. You know, they're taking influences from heavier arrangements, but now they're happy just to be melodic. And uh, metal, oh, I don't even question that. I think the reason why he's come out and had to say that is because I think he's the only original yeah. or long-standing member left of the band. So I think there's more of a mission statement to all of his fellow band people. No, 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 we're still going to do this. We're still a team, and we're still going to deliver our fans what they want. So I think they he's just trying to... Um, Get into the heads. Yeah. And the funny thing is they're self-aware enough to know that the fans aren't warming up to it. Like, they only play one or two off of the original album. Now, normally when a band comes, like Symphony X, for example, when we saw them, they played the entire discography, right? And they just kind of pepper in. Normally, it's not, it's not aggressive. I must admit, like, Symphony X, we're very proud of their uh, last works, album. Yeah. But um, generally, they'll play, you know, a good six or seven songs when they come to see your favorite hometown. Well, not Adelaide, because, you know, no one comes to Adelaide. But, you know, wherever you're from, they'll probably come see you, you know, Antarctica or Sydney. Um, both but, the same, same. Yeah, okay. both the same, you know, uh, cold and boring. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, that's the thing. You know, at the end of the day, they know what's going on. They know the fans don't absolutely love their new stuff, but they're going to try to warm their fans up. Instead of playing or giving songs that they want, they're going to play them songs and hopefully that they'll like eventually. Yeah, I think that's the um, Opeth um, formula at the moment. So maybe, maybe we're worth it in flames. Who knows? Wait and see. So let's move on to the next story. And this is about another bunch of people who don't want to hear certain bands come and play anymore. And this is the U.S. Department of Defense, not Adelaide. Uh, this is the U.S. Department of Defense command post. And they're forbidding certain bands to be played there anymore, Danny. Yeah, that's really 
the strong. I mean, they, they take everything away from you. They take your respect. They take your self work. They take you away from your home. They take your comfortable like linen. And now they take away your music you like. So here's the thing. They're talking about rock bands. And in that is Creed, Smash Mouth, Nickelback. Well, fair, fair call, I guess, for I everyone who controls that, that, you know. Yeah. But Slipknot and Korn have made that list. Now, our idea is to come to the bottom of this. We are super detective brothers after all. And why do you think they're banning those songs, Danny? Or those bands in particular? I really don't know. I mean, I'm really, I'm really confused here. I mean, you seem to put your hand out, man. I feel like I want to ask you, but Ooh! I really feel like Ooh! I want to say something <laughs> to this. Slim Knot and Corn. Maybe these guys are just old school, man. But you seem very excited. So okay. let's go back to you. So let's let's have a think. What do all these five bands have in common? I'm going to tell you. They have one really good song that got played until nauseam, right? So you know what's going to happen is eventually, instead of playing the rest of the discography, they probably been like completely rehash or replay i bet you just uh sorry i bet you with the creed and that it was with arms wide open right that was the only song they played for three or four years straight uh nickelback oh, i don't know whatever they all sound the same right smash mouth hey now you're a rock star uh slipknot wait and bleed maybe right and corn um for the reef freaking the leash you're yeah. gonna leash right i bet you they're the only songs they played and eventually something's got to give right there's only so many amount of nerves that these guys who are trained to kill people mm. can tolerate right yeah. so um yeah i think it's fair enough you know at the end of the day um yeah they're protecting your country and they can't protect it with one song right yeah but it's just how can you just limit to those five bands because there's a lot of other bands out there who've just famous for one song where after a while you just get sick of it so I, I don't know why he's or whoever decided to pick these have just decided to pick these five bands up. There, there, there must be more bands out there which get on whoever's idea nerve, you know. Yeah, they're probably like one of those country guys. It's like oh, all metal music sounds the same. It's all like rude screaming. So when they hear one thing, they're like, nah, anything that's got affiliation to metal, it's like let's ban it. You know, and that's about as heavy as they're going to go, right? I mean, maybe they don't. Maybe they play Cannibal Corpse and they're happy playing the whole entire discography of Hammer Smash Face or whatever. But um. It comes to, uh, yeah, a bit of Slipknot. I'm sorry, guys. You're going to have to just go home and talk to your teenage girl or boy yeah. about that one. This just reeks of this guy's like other daughter was denied like a photo opportunity to Corey Taylor and he's just taking down Corey Taylor and Slipknot. So, no, nah, we're not playing this stuff. Yeah. Like, That's it, mate. You know? Bunch of jerks. Uh, Attila, show ends as Ban gets into a brawl with security. Uh, I had a quick look at this, Danny. It looks like the security got into a conflict with one of the guys in the crowd. Uh, the guys from Attila didn't quite like the way he was handling it and uh, got into a mix up their own, Danny. Yeah, and pretty much um, ended the show. So for anyone out there who's thinking about how do we end the show early, but still come off slightly good, <laughs> just start off the security guard and just say they, they attacked the fan. I mean, it could have been true. It's hard to tell that footage, but it might not be true as well. Because the security guards are forever looking at you, so you can just kind of like keep, just get their eye contact and you know, just start like doing something and it just gets in their heads like, do I know this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and before you know it, you're stealing uh, Bill Burr jokes for the rest of the night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. No more Simpson jokes, Bill Burr jokes. <laughs> but, I, mean, I mean, security, yeah, Apparently, there's rumors out there that the um, oh, well, one side people were defending security guards, saying a lot of those guys that slam dancing, they did roundhouse and elbows and stuff. And I guess one of the security guards took exception to that. But another guy saying security guards were a jerk and decided just to attack a fan. So look, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. But uh, look, the don't, don't do it. Yeah. The band's in a good place, I guess, because they want to protect their fans, and it, and they come across as good guy. But did the show get cancelled, Danny? Like, was that the end of the show? So they going no more songs? Yeah, apparently that was it. They they walked off stage and show done. Ah, uh, look. Security, if even if the security, I was being a bit of a dick, like you gotta play for the rest of the fans because that one altercation would have happened. It's like, yeah, look, the guy's an asshole. Like, everyone in the crowd just keep away from this dude, you know what I mean? And then, like, you know, he could be part of the show, so then everyone turns to him, like, you know, give him crap or something, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's but what you I'm... can't ever stop a show from one altercation, like, 
it's uh, maybe you can maybe we need to make this as a segment maybe Superman brother Matt is wrong again <laughs> and he needs to be told by the Super Metal fans um, I saw Bruce Dickinson for Iron Maiden I remember he um, actually stopped singing during Fear of the yeah. Dark and singled out that one douche who was being too over uh, excited or embellishing too much in the pitting or moshing that um, yeah Bruce singled him out and the security got room that way uh, Look, maybe Tiller could have done that. Maybe Tiller could have like talked, like just single those two guys. I think oh, we cut it out. You know, we wanted to play. It's hard. I guess I wasn't there. These guys here are very passionate. I think they've come out lately and they said they've done a lot of smack talk lately about other vocals and other bands. So maybe these guys just like confrontation, just yeah. like looking for trouble. Yeah, they're looking for a fight and uh, maybe they're trying to figure out the best way of going around fights, but also looking good. Uh, yeah, we'll keep on to the story and see what happens. But yeah, let's move on yeah. to our next one: getting your ashes pressed into a vinyl record. Yeah, that's pretty metal. You know, all rock and roll. Depends how you're going to do it. Uh, somewhere for waiting for, for us to go when we uh, bite the pearly gates or see them anyway. What are we going to go? We're going to go as an ACDC record, Danny? We're going to go as a DA record? What are you thinking? You don't even have to do that. Apparently, you can actually do your own voice recording. So before you die, you can record your voice saying something and they can press it to a vinyl. So your loved ones can always be reminded of your stupid jokes. But then you like play them or something and then it'll be like, it's a ghost talking to you. That that would mess people up, man. They would hear it and be like, this is this is insane. What's even creepy is you actually could play that vinyl at your own funeral. So you could even do like a director's oh commentary God. of your funeral. It's like, oh, I can't believe you picked him to be the pallbearer. What's wrong with <laughs> these people? I don't want those flowers. What's wrong with these people? Oh, um, yeah, that could get. Uh, that could just mess people up, man. Yeah, you know, play it. Play your final joke at your resting place. Uh, let's do it. Let's uh, get people on it. Um, but did you want to um come back? Maybe pick out your favorite album. Maybe maybe yeah. favorite Nevermore album. Oh, foreshadowing. About. Yeah. All right. At the end of the show, maybe I'll figure that out. Uh, yeah. But if you guys are out there and you uh, don't want to get into the whole in the ground thing, you know, and all that wooden lumber and people carrying you, you know, you got to think about us too. You know, we could put you on a wall. Or we could carry you to another place. Oh, come on, you know. Actually, that's interesting because you know people put their urns on like their mantelpiece full of ashes. Yeah. You can actually like limited press this turns like a gold record and stick it on your wall. It's like um, gold records, nineteen sixty five to two thousand seventeen. Yeah. And you can yeah. lie. You say like multi platinum. No one's gonna check. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'll be famous. Uh, let's go on to it. seeing if Rock is famous. Apparently, with Gene Simmons, it's not. Rock's dead, apparently. Now, we talked about this last time, but he still confirms to himself that uh, due to producers not giving people the fair break or just bands being not as memorable or as, like, stalked by the opposite sex worthy, that they've kind of lost a bit of zing about them, right? Uh, Jamie Jackson, we had to ask our fans, and Jamie Jackson responded and said, Metal and Rock is not as commercial as it was in the 80s and doesn't get the airplay it deserves. It's not dead, but being promoted by record companies touring with diehard fans. So yeah, like we were saying before, we talked to a few people about this, that it's gone to a niche market, right? Rock and Metal are finding homes, but just not, they haven't encapsulated with a great audience yet, Danny. Yeah, it's true. I mean, Gina also goes on to say that, Again, the internet is also at fault because people these days just want to rip and download and mm. share. No one really wants to buy albums anymore from artists. Like, sure, you can listen to it through things like Spotify, etc. But each play, you're, you're, the artist gets like point zero 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 two cents. It's, it's not even worth it. Unless they're doing a million plays, they're not making any money from it. Yeah. But then he comes down and says, oh, yes, things like file sharing and things like Napster, which cause the problems. I was like, gee, man, where were you when like... Lars Ulrich needed the backup on yeah. that then. You come out now, like 20, what, 15 years later and say it? Like, oh, yeah, just... Uh. Yeah, all, all these bands were saying, like, nah, they were wrong, you know? Like, let's uh, let's think about, like, sharing it for free. But then they're like, how are we going to get paid? So slowly you're seeing these bands rise up saying, oh, you know, as long as there's a way of protecting the artists from getting paid, like, you know, maybe doing a paid service, you know? So if you're going to sh- share files, at least bands can get, you know, like you said, a monetary value out of it. 
hey, that's a good idea. We should steal that. I should sell that to someone. Exactly right, I hope yeah. no one's listening to the show. Ah, uh, yeah, right, man. No one's listening to this. <laughs> but then you got like Kiss of Stuff, who's like the master of uh, merchandise and like expanding their brand. And even like last week we're talking, they've sold air, gu- air guitar strings. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe Kiss were smart enough as well to like diversify and get their bit of merch out. They had a gimmick that people could sell. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe unfortunately, bands need to get a gimmick. But oh, look, it's very hard. Competition's hard. So let's finish it off with our last story for the day so we can move on to our featured presentation. This is uh, Arch Enemies writing a new album. Actually, they finished writing it, and yep. now they've partially recorded it. Now, I was actually curious to see this because they've got pretty much a super group going on. They've got the Amot uh, still flying there. You've got uh, Alusa Glus, the singer that's been there now for three years, Danny. Three years, and uh, our very own, our very favourite, the one that we're going to talk about soon on this discography, Jeff Loomis from The Ex Nevermore. And we want to see what his uh, plans were for Loomis. You know, you've got this new guitarist, probably the best one running around metal. What do you got planned for him? What do they have planned for Jeff Loomis, Danny? Uh, I think he was there to like make sure the, like, the leads were plugged in. That's and, right. And the strings were in tune. To hold their suitcases and pretty much yeah. nothing else. They said that, don't worry, guys, he's going to be on the album playing. But he hasn't written a single song for this album. What a waste of utility. It is like going to a party, right? And seeing the hottest chick there that your friends brought that you've never had the courage to talk to, but they've bound and gagged her, so you can't even like, you know, even touch her or anything. It's such like what a waste. Like it's never gonna happen. Um what do you think, Danny? It is quite disappointing. I mean, at the same time, Jeff might be like it, because I guess he's got decent paycheck in here compared to like Nevermore just doing solo stuff and yeah. also at the same time he still needs to write one more solo album so I guess by not writing an Arch Enemy he keeps himself free to write for his solo project so look, right. there are some silver linings here it's a shame like I know you're a massive fan you want to hear him write for band stuff mm. again but look maybe after this he can leave Arch Enemy and go back to writing um, making his own band again we'll wait and see you know he's obviously done stuff with Keith Merrow as well he's always up for gun for doing solos i've seen him do a bunch of solos for different people and just the the curse of a great guitarist man if you get him playing on your record you better be sure that you're sitting out like your, your room for the next seven months and practice all the crap out of those scales maybe a problem maybe like i might thought like oh one day looms will leave and then i gotta like play these songs live <laughs> holy shit how am i gonna play these songs live <laughs> so let's move on to our future presentation then review review never more it's very much iconic from The Bird and Edgar Allan Poe's favourite novel of the uh, same kind of thing. What was it called, Daniel? It was called The Raven. That's it right. was called Raven? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think it's really important because we had to talk about one of the greatest metal bands of all time. Nevermore, uh, what are they if you were to consider what style they ended up or they've been across the plethora of the 10, 20 years, sorry, 20 years it was in their lifestyle? Uh, I mean, yeah, style, I don't know. I think it's just like hard rock groove. Uh, metal, I don't I've wouldn't yeah class progressive problems. metal yeah, groove metal thrash metal they they play it around with like death metal at times yeah when it started a bit, you know a bit grungy i guess because that's where the scene they came from so they yeah put that into it so let's move on to uh how it all started for them before they started touring with bands like arch enemy opeth Sirwick, death for example you know this list goes on and on so a little bit about them uh, in early 1990s there were two members from the band sanctuary at the time warrell dane on vocals and jim shepherd on bass now, they were pressured by the label to go for that grunge scene, which was incredibly popular in Seattle at the time. You know, it was making big money. They were making massive ways. Yeah. And so, why not get on top of that? Now, they, uh, Warrell Dane and Jim Shepard had none of it. So, they ended up leaving that and started their own. And that band would be called Nevermore, Danny. I guess they were inspired by the uh, Simpsons uh, reference to 
that one yeah. Edgar Allan Poe uh, poem. Apparently, it's, it's, it doesn't rhyme. Poems have to rhyme. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to understand the nuances of the old English. So if it doesn't rhyme, it's not a poem. That's right, haiku. You're not a poem. But go back to uh, Nevermore, Matt. Yeah, they obviously then needed the problem with the guitarist and drummer, right? And they actually found their guitarist of a touring guy from the old band Sanctuary. He was the one Jeff Lemus, very young at the time. Wow. But they saw potential in him. And so they thought, you know what? Why not take this guy on board and just see what happens, they right? saw those flowing golden locks. Thought, man, he'd be a pretty front guitar person. But then they got close up. like, he's not that pretty at all, no. So they signed up with Century Media Records and in 1995, on February the 14th, their first album, self-titled Nevermore, was released. They recruited Van Williams and former obituary guitarist, what was saying, Jeff Lemus. And uh, this one actually features the original drummer, Mark Arrington, on half the album, 1, 4, 6, 8, 9, and 13. He actually plays on this album, Danny. Um, tell me about your first kind of experiences getting into this album, what you kind of went through, because you've heard the whole entire thing. This is the start. What do you think? Well, I thought, I thought it was quite romantic. They actually released this on Valentine's Day. So that's something. So uh, it's not really a romantic album for starters. It's more of a, you know, them trying to find and establish a sound and i guess it's how you just like left your old band sanctuary which is uh i guess it's well, a bit more power metal melodic it's power metal yeah power pure, metal. pure yeah. Power metal. so you've gone from that you've gone to a new band you've got a new drummer in you've got a new guitarist and whole new sound so this is definitely one of those we're trying to find our sound and you can hear it i mean hearing the new albums and then hearing this album you can see oh they, they do have those groovy heavy riffs but at the same time they I mean, they're not consistent enough with these riffs, and it's not, they don't know where to come to it. So, look, yeah. it, it's 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 a starting album. That's fair to say. And uh, I mean, I've, I haven't put too much effort and time this album because I knew it wasn't a great album. So yeah, yeah like when you, with the first song hits, normally they start quite furious, fast, or at least punchy. This is what tomorrow knows, and it's very much a kind of slower, kind of driving into it a little bit more. But really, off the album, I find it struggling to kind of mention things that really highlight it for me. Uh, God Money, I still get regular plays till today. I think Garden of Grey, they still used to play live up to the very end of it. In the garden. Yeah. No one can breathe. Uh, yeah, and much from that, though, there are some cool little things like the acoustic sections on the start thing of the hunting grounds. Um, and the Sanity Assassin was quite popular as well. But like Dean was saying, because it's a bit, uh, yeah, a bit rough around the edges, um, it wasn't the most polished of albums, but uh, it's a great start, I guess, for the band to dignify their sound because you could tell it was like an, it was like a melting pot of ideas. And uh, when they would move off from that, they would probably start to uh, get into things with. And that's what we'll go into now is the funny enough a demo that was released in between this one and the second album, which we'll quickly mention, which is called In Memory, which was released one year later in July the twenty third, nineteen ninety six. Pat O'Brien actually joined it at this time. Uh, he actually then would leave later on to join a cannibal corpse after the band admitted that many a time during the day he would be thrashing their albums and Jim Shepard, the bass player, would come out and say, no, he'd turn it off and say, only after six can we listen to things this heavy. <laughs> it was literally just too much for the band and uh, eventually, yeah, he would just leave. But in memory, it's it's a good album. It's a good EP. It's got four, five tracks off of it. Yeah. 
And I think more importantly, which I think is that matricide on it. And that as a song is a great starting point. It's like the idea of combining a really long song with very interesting, heavy, dark tones with those beautiful acoustic sections, which are very memorable, but simple. And I think this is where Loomis could tell that and the band were starting to take that power man influence and starting to kind of throw it off the shackles from the Aperus album, Danny. Yeah, definitely right. Um, I'm not sure this EP, like, I know they released it after the Nevermore album, self-titled, but I'm not really sure if they actually recorded these before the album and then released it because it's, it's only like a year after the release. I just don't know, maybe these were songs they didn't think could suit the first album. I no, I think because with Optimist and Pessimist, that song was quite heavy compared to the first album. It's very fast and, and very much where Nevermore will kind of take off from there with the first tracks being a much more aggressive um, and Jeff Loomis would really be a standout with his solos, which would be part of songs rather than some guitarists use solo ideas as like exercises or just to placate his solos with memorable as iconic moments of songs that you almost look forward to, you know, and that's what it separate himself. And this was a good album or EP to really show off that he had the technique in the first album. He started just mm. teasing it, but this album, you can start to see it, but really apart from matricide, um, nothing was much memorable. You know, some of the songs kind of feel like they're kind of reworked ideas of some of the old stuff and just not quite the same. Uh, until they then moved on from their Nevermore and their In Memory EPs and did the album Politics of Ecstasy, which was released in the 5th of November 1996, Danny. Definitely was. So that's you know, three albums in three years. It's quite um, really getting this sent out. I guess, you know, again, yeah. new band. Jeff Williams, I'm not sure how much he wrote for other bands before this. They had a lot of ideas. You just want to get them out there. But again, I think you can tell it's... Um, you can tell it's very similar to like the last two albums that it seems like the ideas all should be similar that's been too much creativeness and then again they still haven't really hit down their style the sound yet they're still developing it and they're still trying to come across it but there is not really that really heavy punchy stuff you hear from the latter albums there there are some glimpses in it i would strongly recommend the seven tongues of god which was a good way to start out a bit more groovier uh then they've got their more iconic songs like this sacrament and next in line which actually made a film clip there are some good heavy songs on this, but I do agree that some of the stuff on there, like 42147, which is more of an instrumental, showcasing the kind of like influences from guitar shredders of the past. But then again, you've got songs like Lost and, uh, gee, there's some absolute ripper riffs in some of these songs, like The Learning as well, which is like an epic song, like nine minutes long of just riffs and a showcase of different ideas that... Um, yeah, it just really gives you the idea now. This is where Nemo are starting to polish a sound now, and they're starting to really get into that heavier tone, uh, the aggression. Uh, more importantly, though, is I think one thing I liked about it is this is the last one with uh, Pat O'Brien, but um, this is where the the name, the name of the album, sorry, was called Politics Ecstasy, which was taken from Tim Timothy Leary's book, which is also called The Politics Ecstasy. Now, this is why he does a lot of Waldane Haydane. He revisits themes, books, politics, and all that, and it gets inspiration for albums. Well, definitely. I mean, the name Nevermore, of course, is based on the poem we've all... Um, or I'm calling it a quasi-poem or, or faux poem that we've all known or heard of were forced in year 10 English class to reading that we had no idea what the hell was going on. So there, there definitely is those patterns, and I guess coming through, even starting now, you're right, there's always those political lyrics and there's those social lyrics which is good it's good that's what metal is about it's about like 
discussing what's out there and trying to get a point across and trying to make it more relevant so we can all think about it so the lyrics are definitely strong and they definitely come through in the um, other albums which i guess we can talk about yeah the only rule uh nitpicking i had to do is the front cover i mean it's like a baby screaming with a controlled sign i mean yeah i get it it's a like, hammy metaphor i guess but um yeah it was pretty much the only thing off the album which i didn't really love it's a very progressive album some really long songs on it um but again it's got some really strong tracks off of it if you really like a good thrash like a thrash metal i think this is a good album for you because it's got songs like seven tongues Tiananmen, and a bunch of other stuff that uh could work for you really really well oh uh, the bad thing about these first two albums uh Walter dane's voice is still not that strong yet mm. so his falsetto is it's, it's like a king diamond falsetto it's like no don't do it please. yeah it's like when it's good it's really good but when it's bad it's just there's not as much girth to it not as much which you'll find later on in the band cycle but uh it's a good place you can hear it start i think the old nevermore albums once you're a nevermore fan the old nevermore albums are actually good to come back to and to hear how they've gone and you'll find some diamonds in the rough for sure but what a difference oh three years would make because after the 1996 release we had the 1999 release in January the 26th, an absolute masterpiece of a record that has been put onto CD, vinyl, MP3, whatever, whatever format you want to hear this album on, do yourself a favor. This is called Dreaming Neon Black, and what an amazing album, Danny. We've lost Pat O'Brien. He's gone to Cannibal Corpse now. He always wants to be a death metal head. They've got Tim Calvert, who, funny enough, after this album actually left and got a job. He's a pilot now in Seattle. Wow, there you <laughs> yeah. go. But this is what we want to talk about is a concept album in the descent of madness of one person, a guy who uh, had a true love. She died and he's going to go with her. Shakespearean-esque. Well, there you go. I mean, I, I don't know how much of that's true on some of those songs, but I guess maybe... <laughs> I mean, Poison Got Machine, I don't think it has anything to do with that, but whatever. But anyway, yeah. yes, this album... Is amazing. This is like definitely top three Nevermore albums because it is just where they na- start to nail down their sound. They start to have those really groovy, strong, heavy riffs that just stick with you. Uh, it, they're just they become really great songs. It's weird because they were always doing the six strings until after this album. So they were still on you know the six string guitars here and E floppy flat tuning, right? Just sorry, e, just standard E flat tuning. But for some reason, these riffs are so unbelievably heavy you know tim calvert uh, really added certain uh, depths to this album jeff loomis i read an article saying that uh, songs like beyond within were actually written by tim calvert with jeff loomis just peering in the background but you can definitely hear how well these guys bounce off each other and how strong that strong these songs are and every song has something about it which separates it different from the album but in the grand scheme of things it all comes together quite nicely danny oh definitely i mean warrell's voice is becoming stronger uh they even have like the great thing about here this song i mean this album sorry is that even the, the title track like dreaming neon black which is more of a a ballad is actually one of their strongest songs so you mm. start to understand the depth of the songwriting from this album based on that they don't just have to be heavy they don't ha- they're not just one trick ponies where a lot of these like deathcore bands or hardcore bands wait for the breakdown to suck you in these guys are just solid well i guess jeff's a solid songwriting you can really hear it throughout the album it's yeah, it's really, really, yeah. really good. You want a slow, crushing song? How about Destruction, right? You want something that's going to be thrashy and punchy? Beyond Within, Death of Passions, I Am The Dog, right? You want your ballad? Well, sure. You know, you got Dreaming Neon Black. And what about everyone's favorite? No one can deny the awesome of this song. The groove factor this is is more than a million. 
Poison God Machine, Danny. This song, Great. we had to play it when we were on the uh, the Andrew Hogue uh, radio. Uh, we had to play the song and we had to show the people how amazing this actual beast of a tune is. Yeah, it's definitely uh, definitely right there. I mean, it does that whole progressive part where like it hits in straight away, very potent, powerful lyrics backed up with sort of riffing. Then it breaks down to the middle where it has a nice solo in there to help you uh, break it up a bit, give you a bit more take a bit more of a ride then cuts back right into it right. and ends with like that powerful screeching falsetto which really like makes you feel it like it's just like because it's just like full disdain in his voice yeah and what the song's about it's just about you know how people get corrupt and the media corrupts you and the government's corrupting you and so you just hear the disdain in his voice is actually and amazing. it's bombarding the whole time with such yeah. a tough couple of riffs man you know it just cycles through this aggression then you got songs like No More Will, which is exactly the expansion needed from the previous albums where it's acoustic, it's beautiful, it's melodic. You know, even some of that stuff appears on uh, Deconstruction where in the middle of it, you know, they, they bring it back to different orchestrations and guitars and stuff like that. But when it hits, it's just so unbelievably tough. It's it's unlike many other bands at the time that were doing this kind of style. It's kind of got those homes in thrash and groove metal, but it separates itself so well and puts itself right on top of it all, really. Yeah, I mean... I know, mate, like you suggested, if you're like an Evermore fan, get into it, you go back to the first couple of albums we just talked about to get into it. But I was like, no, just just go straight to this album and yeah. start off this album. Because this album straight away, well, not the first song is a bit of an intro, but the second song, bang, hits you right hard and it just goes yeah. there. And then you can talk about like Warren Dane's coming, his best moments with like All Play Dead, we're in those choruses. He's getting really high, he's getting up amongst it, but it doesn't lose any of that feel. You know, it always kind of sits where he sits. But when he gets into those meal, and the best thing about it, because at the time he was going through an emotional roller coaster with his own girlfriend, like she ends up giving him the silent treatment and, and ended up screwing him up really bad. But that's exactly what happens when you're in the best place, when you're in the darkest places sometimes to write music. And this album, they must have been in the biggest pool of sadness, mm. drowning in their own sorrow, because this album is the tits. Yeah, no, definitely. I think we've raved about this one enough. I think we should go to the next one, man. Why not? Because a year later, it would only take for them to revolutionize their sound yet again. You know, from January 26, 1999, then in October the 17th, 2000, they would change their sound forever by going down to seven strings. We are talking about Dead Heart and a Dead World, Danny. Yeah, another great album. I mean, this one here again has... It just keeps going with that Nevermore sound, that style. They definitely nail it down with Dreaming Neon. They just keep at it with these strong, heavy grooves, but also balancing out with these strong melodies and strong ballads. I don't know if Jeff Loomis and the guys had a strong inkling of what was going around at the time, or he just loved music, because you could tell that bands like Corn and Mishuk at the time were developing a sound into lower tunings, and he happened to just get on board with that at the same time, but make it different, you know? I can, to a degree, hear sometimes you could argue maybe with songs like Narcosynthesis, maybe that there are influences in those kind of bands but this album again it's like the song was so like believe in nothing it's like a ballad right it comes towards the end of the song incredibly heartfelt such a beautiful and powerful moment for the band really and it was so good that two bands ripped them off not one but two firewind would rip it off but more infamous infamously and i really use that term like with as much conviction as this does ripping my balls off all that remains did it as well on one of their albums mm. and it was a pile of crap it was, but I mean, give it credit for, for two bands to cover a song which really isn't that old. It's it's quite quite decent. But it shows how good we're talking about, it. and that is one of the nicer songs off the album. It's definitely full of sorrow, mourning, 
so sad heart collector with it and then from there it goes to the other episode, uh, other end of it hey with like dead heart and a dead world for example the last track when it finally kicks in whoa that groove i don't know where you can hear that stuff anymore it's just out of control yeah and they they give us the one that i think one of the greatest musical sections of all time it's in the um engines of hate when they come when they cut back into it and they go into those pinch harmonics and all of a sudden it goes do 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 bang the sheep were made too far that is one of those greatest bits of songwriting i've ever heard every time that's on i just love it the first track that was written off this album was funny enough inside four walls and that was one of the first riffs that jeff Loomis wrote on his seven string what a great jumpy tune. It is such a riffer. Like, it's going to get the crowd moving. No matter where they go in the world, they're going to hear that riff, and they're just going to jump up and down. And you could play that riff to guys into new metal, guys into thrash, death metal, whatever. This is These are songs that transcend genres, right? And this is how I'm talking about with We Disintegrate, nice and fast and funetic. And then we're talking about the River Dragon, which iconic moment with one of the greatest feels that work in it but one of the toughest simplest riffs that can be pulled off with so much conviction Danny definitely I mean that song sucks you in with like a nice slow intro and then 32 33 seconds into it just like hits you where it hurts and it keeps going I mean again this album is just full of strong memorable riffs but also like those strong melodies and those ballads um, again Warhol's voice becomes stronger which is good he gets a bit more power there which is nice and I mean, the good thing about Warrior, at least because he's got that unique tone about him. I mean, it's a big about tone. If you don't like his tone, unfortunately, you might struggle to like yeah. it. But his tone, because of the angst, and it does fit a lot of these songs. And that that kind of whining um, sound he has on actually does fit the tone of the lyrics and of what the songs are about. So it does... It has suit. a layer of despair and angst, I think, but not too much where it becomes not contrived, but definitely forced in a sense that uh, you know that that nasally thing it comes from a, i think it comes more authentic and it comes right from the gut and, and the actual reimagination of a song like the sound of silence you know mm. simon garfunkel's song way before that deserve were ripping it off and making it into a multi-billion dollar industry yeah. again whatever but this was actually a song that nevermore wrote that you know warrell dane would then put the lyrics to to encapsulate the idea and feel but the riffs are more important and that's where the song stands out you know the song in itself and then the delivery from warrell dane works so well you know definitely now look, again this is a lot of great things about this album it's sounding great um, one thing good thing about Nevermore is their production is always quite strong. They always have a really heavy, loud, and solid guitar sound and drum sound is always really there. Really and this clear. is where Andy Sneap comes on board, and I think that's what's most important. I think they, the producer, they relationship they have with this producer, and this producer is known for getting great performances out of bands, authentic performances, and then giving it the attention it needs with the mixing and mastering afterwards, whereas some other artists would just cut and paste until we get the best performance. He'd be the, the best, most authentic performance, you know? And it really comes through. Even songs like, for example, Evolution 169, which really are nice and slow and droney, but they just... They got all these strong melodies and all this simplicity, but they never forget what's most important. And it's the melody and the grooves, the combination of it all together to make it for an enjoyable listen. And this is why it sold so well. Number, ranked 361 in Rock Hard Magazine's book of the 500 greatest rock metal albums of all time, you know? And that's it should really acknowledge how great this album is. And to be honest, I probably would recommend people listen to this album before they listen to Dreaming Neon Black because I find it as more of a commercial release. There is a bit of dirt and a bit of darkness to the other album before, which won't appeal to a lot of fans. But this album here, if you're a metalhead and you like any genre of metal, then just check it out. It's There's going to be a way. And the thing is, though, it does polarize because there are things about it like 
the um, the singing, for example, it does separate people away from it. But once you immerse yourself in it, I think you find it's a very enjoyable occasion, Danny. Definitely, definitely the one to buy, mate. So as you can tell, we're really getting into this out al- these albums, right? And seeing that there's a bit of a theme, you know, it's taken two, three years going on, and this one will be no different. Enemies of Realities, the next album, released July the 29th, 2003. Now, this one had a bit of drama connected to it. There were a couple of things that were going on to make life difficult for the band, Danny. I really are. Nowhere. One thing was they were having a bit of problems with the label. So the label was holding out, giving you a new contract, and the band, I think, at the time, were thinking they could probably get a better deal, right? And so the label only offered them, I think, 20 grand to write this album, which in the scheme of things to pay everyone is probably on the shorter side, seeing as there's multi-thousands, hundreds and whatever to, to release it. So they went with what they could. They went with a pop producer. Uh, his name was Kelly Gray. They changed it up a little bit. They got rid of Andy Sneap. And so they had the one guitarist back, obviously, with Jeff Loomis, who did, he's been on his own since uh, Dead Heart and Dead World as well. Uh, obviously, because Tim Calvert left uh, to go be a pilot. And the one thing I really found is that the recording on the very first album was so bad, they actually had to re-release it uh, with Andy Sneap because... Literally, even with Jeff Loomis would admit that the album itself was actually just generally, you know, he, he this producer was way out of his limits. He should never have done metal. So there you go. Look, I honestly think you can hear it off this album. This album is not as strong as the last two. Hmm. I think it's, uh, yeah, it doesn't have a lot of really solid or consistent heavy riffs or songwriting as the previous two albums. And it could be that. It could be because the producer didn't have the direction to like, push Jeff to like think of like creative more creative riffs or help out time when they need to be a bit stale maybe this producer thought this all sounds pretty good to me it's not going to be the first time they chose a producer that would end up you know hindering the band rather than helping it you know which we'll go into later on trust me we'll get into that in details but that saying I still think that this album has some absolute ripping songs off of it and I'll tell you why first and off the trademark of this band's sound is how much land these guys are ready to cover because they want to do everything from the most softest to the most heaviest but it's in a dark field they're never really getting too happy about it this is going to be pretty much a metal album in that context right now let's let's start from the very first track that one just tears your face off with enemies of reality just a really riffing good tune you know it's it's a good one to start off an album ambient again nice little classic riff from them you know a bit more simpler though you can start to tell that Meshuggah influence coming through especially with songs like i voyager where it is a pretty much Meshuggah riff a couple of times through it so you can really start to hear they're wearing the influences on their sleeve at this point but what do you makes you think there are this album danny that's a bit too poppy for you or not as much resonates with you like for example dead heart and a dead world or dreaming neon black oh again it's just because the consistency of the heavy riffs or the really strong groove sections which are for the songs like in the previous albums, it'll be a major part of the songs. I just don't really hear it enough throughout the whole album to say it's really just a solid album or solid riffs. I don't really get too much of that through the album. I I actually really, really dig this album, but it takes me a while, took me a while to get into it because of the recording from the previous one was so bad. And when I got the Andy Sneak one, I could really hear it different. Although when you hear songs like Create the Infinite to Tomorrow Turned Into Yesterday, you can hear how much of a divide the, the mixing is it's almost quite ugly you know but and saying that tomorrow turned into yesterday is a great song yeah sure it's more in pop and fuse and it sounds like it come off of a guns and roses cd but it would come off symphony of destruction cd not like you know whatever uh, disaster they read afterwards you know um songs like create the infinite great track really punchy 
Uh, never Purify. Maybe towards the end of the album with No Miron. Uh, it's a bit slower. It's very not so much a riff uh, song. It's more of an ambient song, which I think for the band doesn't do me as many favors, you know. Um, but Seed Awakening comes back to being more of a, a thrashy kind of thing with the gallops and that corn. You know, you, 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 it's, it's, it's indescribable. You hear a band doing a backbeat with two notes like and like you know an acoustic section it's it's like that it sounds like hip-hop you know that's what they do and uh this corn reference was quite a nice you know which uh definitely must admits that uh, he does take inspiration from no it's good i mean why not it was definitely around that time and they were definitely in here he gets inspired by quite a few musicians and different genres out there i just thought this album was too safe seven and eight i found were a bit running through the gap and i think when it comes to some of the other songs off of the album which are very very good and the lower points for me unfortunately don't resonate as strongly as some of the lower points in other albums like for example with a dead heart and a dead world insignificant would be one of my downlight but at least it had parts in the song which i could always go back to and really enjoy uh dead heart or i mean sorry uh jimmy on black very hard to really mention anything that i didn't really not like from that album uh, but yeah, this album I do find one or two tracks don't really work for me. Uh, but generally, a very enjoyable listen. I do recommend it though to once you get into Dead Heart and Dead World, then Jimmy on Black. This is probably the third album you might want to consider, or would you? Well, yeah. I mean, the way you look at, it, I mean, you're very invested because you love Nevermore so much. So this album here kind of does really turn you off Nevermore. I just thought it was a safe album, and that's yeah. why it got mixed reviews, but generally positive. And I think at the end of the day, because these musicians are so talented in their own regard and they've been doing now a sound which separates them from everyone else so they have more of a field to play with without alienating fans which a lot of bands find a problem these days you know once you have elitists and your crowd they will divide it but this band set up from the very get-go a sound that they could cover and uh not really going to alienate too many people you know yep then something happened in two years i have no idea what happened to this band but something happened, and I would agree that inspiration hit, because what we're going to talk to you about now is probably not only one of Nevermore's greatest albums of all time, but probably, if not one of the best metal albums of all yeah. time. Now, that's going to be a lot harder for people to understand, because a lot of people want to rate, you know, bands that like Black Sabbath or, you know, Rainbow, and that, you know, they are iconic, they created a sound that's, uh, you know, really set the path for bands to go on, but... The amalgamation of ideas and the execution with some of the best musicians going around in the industry all folded into one band that gave themselves the melting pot to do this over the course of, you know, 15 years or whatever. So 10, so 10 years, you know. Uh, we're talking about the album Godless, the Godless Endeavor. Uh, they got re-signed to Century Media again and they put Andy Sneap back on the helm and so they should have because they we saw the success they did with uh, Dead Heart and a Dead World. But Danny... I want to know why this album for us is one of the most quintessential albums that people must own. Yeah, yeah. This is again going back to those great Neverwhere albums of Dreaming Neon Black and Dead Hard Dead World. This is like again them being like, you know what, we're going to go out and give it all we can and really hit the nail on the head. And they do. I mean, again, back to strong, solid riffs, back to very creative riffs as well, you know, using different parts of the guitar, producing different sounds, different speeds, tempos. Again, throws in the um, ballads when required uh, yeah the, these songs become back to like nevermore songs what what they would do is recruit steve smith now i would know steve smith from dragon lord right and a few other bands as well going around he was the second guitarist on this album but he again had influence in certain songs and what a way to put your stamp in the band you know i would love to have seen this guy gone full-time but apparently due to you know differences personal business reasons he must have he had to leave the band right 
but he got to be a part of one of the best metal albums. And for that, this is how good the album was. It actually made pop culture references with Chase Stein, one of the um, Marvel comics called Runaways. They mentioned the Psalm of Lydia to a co-worker, like in one of the um, in one of the things, you know. I mean, a beast of a song, don't get me wrong, but we're here to talk about what we love about the album, first and foremost. And from the very get-go with the song Born, you start to realize how these guys are not mucking around. This is an album for the ages. Yeah, definitely. Again, back to the um, very profound, very poignant, war-related, politic-based lyrics. They really hit you there. They did a film clip, and film clip's all about that as well, so you really get to... Down the head, I guess the cover art reflects that as well with all the skulls and the child there from the innocence. So, again, they really want to hit you hard and get that emotion with you again. But it's, it's how the song plays its parts and how the song moves along like a well-oiled machine. From the very intro to the next groove to the chorus, which is incredibly memorable with one of the sickest guitar rhythm slash lead sections over the back of it, which everyone wants to learn, right? <laughs> to the let's not forget the eye-watering, ear-melting vibrato slash solos from Jeff Loomis man this song from the very get go does everything right and it just keeps on going with this album when we start talking about final product such an amazing intro very technical and fast you know with those octaves then the biggest groove that's going to hit you I mean like what band does that what band starts with a death metal intro to a melodic chorus incredibly big full of bravado and and, uh, you know, just amount of power and aggression. And then Final Product with, again, a great groovy riff, you know, and an incredibly catchy chorus. How do they do it, man? Oh, I don't know. It's it's just, yeah, I mean, they're, they're being ballsy again. I mean, back to Ames Reality, they seem a bit too safe back here. Now they've come to this album, and they just felt like, you know what, we're going to go for it, and we're going to be creative. We're going to take the emotions and the rides again like we did in the past. That's right. Acid Feast comes around. So Acid Words probably come around. More of them like Death Middle Foot at the intro, you know, Big fat groove, chorus that you could sing for days, and then it comes into that again. They go into these great grooves. They, they just find themselves encased in songs, and they're going to throw them somewhere else different this time. You know, it's not going to be on the verse. It's not going to be the chorus. It's going to be a bridge or whatever. You know, moving on to Bittersweet Feast and Sentient Number Six. You know, but if it's if Bittersweet Feast has a great little uh, some really iconic moments, but mostly an enjoyable listen until you get to Sentient Number Six, a ballad again, just really strong. Hey, Danny. Yeah. Again, you tell like. While I was saying suits these ballads because his voice again is that whole. I mean, whiny is not a nice way of putting it, but it has that droning, ain't feel to his song. So when it comes to the slow, methodic, like song where the background you have that the drummer dun dun, like that heartbeat sound to it, it really makes you get the emotions going. There's yeah. a sincerity in his despair, really, and I think that comes across. Uh, he he is quite when you see him in the interviews, he seems quite proud and quite. Uh, you know, aware that he's going through some tribulations and he sees himself, the biggest part of him getting out of it, but they're always a part of him. And I think he does a well, good job to execute those with, through these songs, like you said, these ballads, like Sentient Number 6. And then you got Medicated Nation, again, a great bunch of great guitar moments in that song with some really prominent uh, singing through it. You know, I just want to go through every single track of this album, you know, because there's just so many points that really get me going. Danny, is there something else that you kind of wanted to mention before we, you know, kind of wrap this one up no i think i mean just it's just again it, the song structures are great they go have the progressive feel when you come to the end of goddess endeavor where they just start on a nice slow 
um, song. They try and take you, you feel like, oh, it's like the last song. They just take you on a journey. They wind yeah. it up. But it's then like that s- smacks back into like it. Like, Sell My Heart for Stones. Another great chorus. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, it's just like incredibly big, strong, powerful moment. Samalia comes afterwards and it shows you what guitarists these oh, both are. So Massive guitar wank section in the middle of it because it needs it. You know, at the end of the day, these guys can play and this is the song that's going to rip your uh, head off. Future Uncertain, incredibly beautiful acoustic guitar work, rah, rah, rah. So all of a sudden, you've got all these amazing iconic songs that you're going to remember and play back after you listen to them, but nothing compares to the onslaught that you get the last track. All the people come out to play for this one. There's nothing left unsaid, and literally, this is like a masterclass on, on songwriting, really, Denny, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a great way to end an album. Again, like saying they, they trick you, you think it's just going to be like winding down song. You think it's going to be another ballad because the start is just the first minute and a half. It's just that winding part, and just slow and calming to a degree. And then just cuts in. And from then, it's just like, holy shit. Yeah, all of a sudden, it starts to warm you up. And this album has this like arch to it. You know, it just gets heavier and heavier. And it just gets you more and more. And all of a sudden, it just keeps developing into it. Just for it to just destroy itself into this arpeggio section, which is just wrist crushing rsi inducing amount of madness that uh, only jeff limbs could provide but they're all the risks of this song like it's just a joke the, the most some of the most iconic moments of world dang with some of his most powerful wailing and some of his most darkest and dreariest uh, vocal abilities come out to play in this song and it to the very very end to just let it all go into this falsetto that is so awesome it's just like right beckoning to uh summon the gods themselves you know it's 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 this song's a masterpiece and every single riff of this album of this in track as well is is just better than than albums it's a joke this out al- this this track is just is just phenomenal yeah no great look at it definitely a great album definitely right up there for the, their top album it's just again who knows how much of it was just because of good producers maybe that extra input extra the guitarists as well the there were quite well. other factors going on yeah. as well i think and they gave themselves time after the uh the enemies of reality with uh, a lot of anger they had obviously with resentment with the label and and problems obviously with uh, with that kind of stuff but i still would probably recommend slowly the dead hunter dead well because i think for a commercial release dead hunter dead well i think for them is a lot more accessible for a bigger number of fans however this for them for me especially is their best album and they would never ever match it ever again and that leads us, unfortunately, to their last album, Matthew. Yeah. So before we get into the last album, we need to go through a few things. We need to set this last album up to show you uh, the heights of which they, honestly, they I think they felt. 2006 would actually be a very bad year, just one year after the release of Godless Endeavor. Uh, Jim Shepard underwent uh, procedure for Crohn's disease. Steve Smith got type 2 diabetes. And Warrell Dane fell ill with an infection just before their first live DVD. So they had quite a lot planned. This was going to be shot in Germany, this DVD. They had it all, all the thousands and thousands of dollars put up in that. But the doctors suggested he don't leave the hospital. So that's where he stayed and the gig was cancelled. Now, you can imagine the kind of momentum they would have lost from, you know, putting help to such a big gig. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you're right. They, they got momentum back with the Godless Endeavor. They'll strong wind in their sails though they all things were looking good yeah with things like that happening and steve smith leaving for business and personal reasons in 2007 we saw Warrell dane and jeff loomis start side projects each with their basically their name moniker being the uh the the vehicle for their artistic license i guess danny yeah doing like a devon townsend and just not being too imaginative of their name just using themselves yeah. as the selling you wouldn't hear nevermore in 
these records, to be honest. I mean, Laurel Dane did a more of a melodic kind of soil worky thing with the guitar. It's not really melodic death metal, but it's a rock album, I think, for first and foremost. Where Jeff Lynne would go instrumental. He would, he would inspire from guys like Jason Becker, Marty Friedman, and, uh, you know, Eugene Mountstein. Yeah, like Vi and Satriani. And it was pure and just shred, you know. And uh, good albums they were, you know. Definitely not for the faint of hearted. They definitely got a niche market in themselves, you know. But they got a way of expressing themselves and uh, hopefully getting paid. They were reunite really the band almost... Uh, Took him four, five years, I think. To, after yeah, since Godless Endeavor took him five years to release their next album. This is the longest fans would have to wait for a Nevermore album. And uh, oh, geez, this album, Danny, um, something sounds off the very instant you start playing it. Hey, Danny. Yeah, it seems like it's um, dare I quote Dane and soulless. It's just it's the songs are either. Hits or misses, and unfortunately, the misses are really big misses. And I'm going to attribute that to a number of factors. Yep. First and foremost, let's talk about Pete Winters. Now, he's this guitarist, ex-guitarist from Soilwork, right? Known for making some pretty catchy tunes with the band, you know, cutting a lot of fat. And his solos, though not very technical, he had the technique to do them. He, he mostly did things that would help the song kind of go forward, you know? Um... At least at the start of the band, I've always found that more technical. But by the end of it, he was definitely simplifying their sound with the band, like songs like from Figure Number no. Five album, which was more of a rock inspired, very much radio friendly. You know, radio friendly in Sweden, not radio friendly in Australia, yeah, sure. right? But uh, he was the guy who was running the helm. So they got rid of Andy Sneap and they put Pete Winters. And they wanted it deliberately because they liked his his ideas, right? And his ideas were to take Loomis's seven to eight minute songs, cut them right down get his solos, make sure they're more simplified so they resonate better with general population and really cut the fat out of anything that shouldn't be there. The problem that I find out with this is that Jeff Loomis isn't someone that needs any fat cutting. He's such a talented and gifted musician and his lineage of writing should tell you that even his seven, eight minute songs are seven and eight minute songs now that we're worth listening. Maybe in the first couple of albums, I could argue for example, Politics and SXC, uh, maybe like Passenger, uh, all the some Politics and SXC go quite along. And, you know, certain sections of that, you know, it's kind of bide their patience a little bit. But, Danny, this is what I'm talking about. Like, do you really believe that Jeff Loomis needed someone over the top of him to tell him to shorten his songs and make his solos a little bit easier to listen to? Well, uh, no, because, uh, well, I mean, whatever, was it the Sneers bloke? Was it the password you just said? That's the guy. Snape, yeah. See, that's the guy you should be listening to because he obviously got the best out of Loomis. They worked the best together. He's the guy who... Those albums were um, Nevermore's greatest albums. And this one here, it's... Yeah, it, it seems a bit too... I can only yeah. speculate that the guys in Nevermore wanted to branch at their field. They've maybe felt underappreciated, which I could honestly understand. These guys should have been playing to crowds that Iron Maiden play to in a backyard on a weekend at your kid's birthday, right? I understand that. They might have missed it, though, with this guy because I really believe they were on that train. They were going to go to great, greater things and just with keeping the right people on board would have branched their market out. Uh, maybe some better marketing. Who else knows? But one thing I wanted to acknowledge before we get any further is that on the Conquering Dystopia DVD, which was a Jeff Loomis, Keith Merrow side project band, Loomis devolved into the drama at the time that he was very sad writing the album. And I think that's the best way of summing this album up. It sounds sad, but doesn't sound inspired. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, there are some really great songs off here, like definitely Moonrise, and then you hear um, Seventh Shore as well. That's one, isn't it? Yeah. 
And that, and that, I mean, the singing on that is actually you hear all of Warren registry there, and it's quite, quite decent singing. So there are some great songs off the album, but again, the ones which are missed, they missed a lot. Yeah, the the highest moments on this album, obviously, in Spirit, Obsidian Conspiracy. Sorry, yeah, that would be the highest moment of the album, and again, that is like a phenomenal song, probably be in Nevermore's top five of all time. Knowing that Andy Sneap could have mixed it and mastered it made me would feel a little bit better. But you're right. The lowest points of this album, like the Blue Marble and the New Soul, um, even songs like The Poison Throne, even sometimes, I've got to be honest, The Termination Proclamation, these aren't songs that Nevermore would consider at their best to, to write. You know, it seems like they're just a bit flat. They're just, they're not as, they're not as emotionally grabbing. They're not as uh, furious. It sounds like this playing is quite nice. Um, which is, oh, there's just something off this whole album, isn't there, Danny? Yeah, definitely. There's also like other backstories. I reckon, I think it was um both Jeff Loomis and Van Williams were being frustrated with Warhol saying they weren't getting paid or he was... Yeah, like pay. Jim Shepard and Warhol covering yeah. the monies and they were getting paid through them. They're like, well, hold on, we've been here since the day dot. Like, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, so I think a lot of those tensions were occurring. Who, who knew what was, um, all that backstory could affect it. Maybe they, they just lost interest in the band. Alcohol problems, maybe just touring, who knows? But there aren't there aren't many highlights of this album really worth mentioning. I do like the emptiness unconstructed. I do like without morals. Uh, Moonrise is a great song, and obviously track ten, the Obsidian Conspiracy. But aside from that, it's really hard to put this album start to finish and really get a feel for the passion, the aggression, the excitement that you get from other Nevermore records. It really is a. I'd almost recommend this one lower than some of the first albums. I would definitely recommend this around Politics Ecstasy record. Like it just doesn't. And that's a big fall for me. I really don't think this album has the ma- the magic that uh, is encapsulated in the albums before it. Yeah, uh, I think that's fair to say. It's just, unfortunately, it was it, it, it sounded like the end, and it was, unfortunately, the end of Nevermore. I don't think they lasted too much longer after this. They didn't. They were going to tour in Australia again, and just before they came down here to tour, they pretty much pulled the plug. I think they're only a month away from coming to Australia as well, so... Yeah, yeah. that was pretty much it. So, yeah, after the album was released, let's talk about the basically the fall of Nevermore. We talked about the rise, but on April the 11th, 2011, Nevermore cancelled a tour with Symphony X. Could wow, you really? Yeah. Holy could you shit. imagine that? We could have oh, seen two awesome. of my favourite bands of all time side by side, the best guitarist running around, Michael Romeo, Jeff Loomis, man. These two guys are and should be household names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, unfortunately, they cancelled the tour and Jeff Loomis and Van Williams would announce later on that due to personal and musical differences that they left the band. Yeah, uh, it's a bit of a shame. So, unfortunately, they went their separate ways. Forward day and went back into Sanctuary. Yep. Jeff Loomis went to a side project. Now, Arch Enemy. Um, Van Williams went to that... Ghost Ship Dr. Various. Ghost Ship Various. Yeah. So, everybody went their separate ways, unfortunately, and it's just that's how it is. Yeah, the very, very last word on it that we could find anyway is that Warrodan and Jeff Loomis, Jeff Loomis sorry, haven't ruled out a possible reunion. Hmm. Although that Warrodan has actually covered Nevermore songs in certain you know, solo performances. He's got another guitarist to come. I think maybe even Attila, the guy, last guy to be on guitars uh, in the Nevermore band. Young guy, 24 years old, and he can play all this stuff. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, even though he's done covers like with other stuff, he would never, ever do a Nevermore album without... Uh, Jeff Lehmann is on board to write the songs. Is there any chance, Danny, that we could see any kind of circumstance that would bring these two together in order for us to maybe one more time hear the brilliance that only Nevermore can bring on a record? 
Yeah, uh, there's probably a strong possibility of that, Matt, because you're thinking with Loomis, if he gets that disenfranchised with Arch Enemy where he can't get a sound out or he can't find other people who he wants to play and form a band with, he might go back to Worrell and reform Nevermore. I mean, they left on terms, but it wasn't like a full blow and they start punching up or anything like that. It was just, they, they're probably just, I mean, they, they've been together for like 20 years, like those three guys. For them to last 20 years together on the road, and always playing with each other, it, it's it's not a bad effort. So yeah, I mean, I'd love yeah. to see Jeff Loomis do it for his own reasons, and I know Warren Dane, obviously from what we've seen, is open to it. I think Jeff Loomis has mentioned he'll do a tour maybe or like a gig with him. Yeah. Uh, it's possible. It's unlikely at the moment because obviously, like we've seen, the guys have moved on. Jim Shepard and Warren Dane are still in the same band with with Sanctuary. Um, Jeff Loomis and Van Williams are doing different things, but there is a possibility there, and I'll, I'll always be open to the possibility ever happened, you know? So still to this very day, I might even check on the internet to see how Jeff Loomis is going, see if he even brings up the band Nevermore up in an interview, just to hear by any chance that his ideas or his uh, feelings around have changed, um, because we are almost deprived of the world without hearing such an amazing collaboration of songs put together on an EP. It's... I cannot stop talking about how great this band is and how ashamed I feel for people who haven't listened to it and hopefully they can get something out of it like I have. Yeah, definitely. Oh, you've definitely got a lot out of it. <laughs> oh, my God. He's going to sue you soon. I, I've written songs and I'm just like that. The people have seen it and heard it and like, that's a Loomis riff. And I'm like, you know what? It definitely is. And that's one of the biggest compliments I can ever hear is that people that have inspired me to get up and play guitar and to do it and uh, to hear that people can hear that through me is is, uh, is a great honor. And uh, I've, after meeting the guy and having one of his guitars... Uh, it's quite, um, I feel like it's an achievement. And um, yeah, it's. I really want to see this band back together and let's hope that one day they will. Yeah, I mean, we are fortunate enough to see him live once back here in Adelaide and that was uh, definitely a great, great gig there. I had Fantastic. a stomach infection. I was vomiting and massive pooping at the butthole, <laughs> but I dehydrated myself the whole day so I wouldn't miss a single beat with Nevermore and I didn't. We had friends come down who don't even like metal who came to the gig because they knew how amazing this band was and they loved it, you know? We had some of your closest mates down. I've never even seen them pick up a Cannibal Corpse or a Corn record, yeah. let alone Nevermore. But they came and they thought it was one of the best yeah, things ever it. and so they should have. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I guess to sum up Nevermore, these, this band is definitely one of the great metal bands and a, better, a metal band everyone needs to hear. I mean, don't give don't care about genres. Oh, I don't listen to that genre. No, no. This is a metal band which if they were had a break somehow and they became yeah. a bigger band, which they deserve to be, these guys deserve to be bigger than like the level Metallica because their songs are that great and they're so accessible. That's the problem. Their riffs are so accessible and their songwriting is so accessible and they have so much to offer. I don't understand how a band like this can't be big, but a band like Guns N' Roses can't be that big. Yeah. It's like these guys have proven at least on three to four albums how solid they are as songwriters so even yeah. at their weakest they trump generally a majority of metal bands you know and at their strongest they are the strongest metal band there is no denying how and what these guys can do you know and they've given themselves such a playground to play with but they exceed at everything that they do because they know in their hearts what they're good at and what they're willing to bring to the team they're guys who love music and first and foremost long live nevermore definitely definitely great band check them out and with that, Danny, we have reached the final part of our segment. What a time it's been. I absolutely love doing these retro reviews. I can't wait to do more of them. I think we're going to have to bring some other people in because uh, when it comes to other bands, I do kind of fall out of favor and not buy their records. <laughs> we, 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 we cherry pick the best albums. You know, bands I'd imagine Symphony X would be on the cutting blocks and some other bands. After that, we'd love to have guests on here. And we want to hear from you guys. If you guys know 
of anyone. Or if you guys want to hear our thoughts on a whole entire range of your favorite band's discography, we want you to jump in our Facebook wall at uh, facebook.com forward slash supermetalbro or on Twitter or even find us on SoundCloud, which you probably listen to right now. Yeah, or even just retro review like just one album of a certain band you like, you know, maybe the Black Sabbath Volume 4 or something like that. That's, hey, we're all up for it, man. Oh, until then, I'm Super Metal Brother Matt. And I'm Super Metal Brother Dan. So hide your face and watch us exterminate ourselves over you. Welcome to the end, my friends. The sky. Take care, guys. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>